I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. What's next? In this uncertain time, the question impacts nearly every aspect of our lives. But as learning has moved out of schools and into homes, off chalkboards and onto Zoom, the question of what's next seems particularly central to our existing approach to education and how kids learn. Few raise these questions or search more for answers than Michael Horn. Among other roles, Michael is a senior strategist at Guild Education and is co-founder of and a distinguished fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. Michael also serves as an executive editor at Education Next and is the author of Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns, Blended, Using Disruptive Innovation to Improve Schools, and most recently, Choosing College. From technology to policy to distance learning, does this moment offer opportunities for transformational change or simply greater risks? Does this disruption offer a unique generational opportunity to rewrite the existing rules? Before my conversation with Michael, an ask from me to you. If you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It'll make a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Michael Horn. Michael, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. It's great to be with you. So you have written widely on the subject of disruptive innovation. What is disruptive innovation in education? And do you see this moment as laying a foundation for the ideas you've written and spoken about for so long? Yeah, it's a great question, particularly because I think disruptive innovation is this concept that has been misinterpreted and popularized uh, to mean things in, in popular culture that are very different from what the original idea was. And so disruptive innovation very simply means uh, new services coming into the world that are more affordable, accessible, convenient, and simple to use uh, than those that had existed before. Uh, that were limited in scope to those people who had a lot of expertise and a lot of wealth. And disruptive innovation, in essence, is the process of decentralizing uh, access to these services by far more affordable, accessible uh, uh, offerings. But what's also true is that these services start as primitive relative to the best of the best of what existed. And so the people that are maybe using existing services, they look out at these disruptive innovations and they say, that's not all that attractive. But what they don't understand is that for someone who literally has no access to, say, tutoring or something like that, it's better than their alternative, nothing at all. And disruptive innovations, they get their start there. And they reliably and predictably get better and better and better powered by technology enablers that take into effect research and, and sort of the upmarket, if you will, trajectory uh, of, of technology to get better and better and serve more demanding use cases. And so in education, broadly speaking, we've said online learning and online activities allow us uh, to disrupt the historical way to access uh, education and can serve as a disruptive innovation to start to give the power of a tutor to every single child. And that's what's so exciting. 
And what's interesting about this particular moment we're in yeah. is that obviously all learners are now, for better or worse, <laughs> learning online. And it's certainly in many cases more primitive than what they had if it's existing. I think the answer to is this a moment is sort of a yes, it is and no, it isn't at the same time. And and what I mean by that is I think in the no, it isn't camp is is there are some people who are just thrust into this new world of remote or online learning and they're not really using the tools that are available out there. They're not using the pedagogy and sort of uh, le- science of learning that we that have been built into really high quality products. And so they're going to come out of this and say, gosh, never again. I can't wait to get back to the traditional classroom. And it's really going to leave a sour taste, I think, in some people's mouth. On the other hand, I think you're going to start to see school districts and some teachers and some parents start to question first principles and say, holy cow, like, A, we need to be investing in these sorts of services in case that happens again. And that'll have, you know, I think very big benefits as it starts to bleed into the classroom. And I think there's a bunch of folks who will say, huh, why is it that, you know, we think that we should deliver the same lesson to every single kid in the same day in the same way when, you know, that's not clearly not how they're learning and online it's really absurd and maybe allow them to start questioning some first principles and get some experience with some digital tools that are really, really good and start to do things differently. You know, I don't think Zoom is the answer uh, for, for, for this world, but uh, there are some amazing digital tools out there that I think could start to radically transform how people think about this moment. How much of a key to drive disruptive innovation is disruption? The tools that we have right here, right now um, are spotty and one district may have great tools, other districts not. Even within districts, some families might have better access to certain capabilities and other families not. But the opportunity for, innovate, for, for disruptive innovation, in listening to you, maybe it requires disruption, Yeah. So there's no question in this sense, which is one of the reasons that schools have been impervious, I would argue, to disruption generally, has been that we all have access to schooling. We all, you know, in in the United States, that is right. In developing countries, it's a very different story. And there's some very interesting innovations going on. But we have a full established system with no non-consumption of schooling. And so it's actually really hard. And I would argue disruption actually literally cannot function within that system. And so that's why largely we've written about disruption occurring at the level of classrooms, but not of schools and districts and things of that nature. The longer this pandemic stretches on, and the longer that remote learning becomes a reality, I think your point is spot on, which is that favors real disruptive innovation because you know, the other option that we had is literally not there anymore. And so the alternative is nothing. And we've got to do better than what we're doing right now and will force us to innovate. So in my in, in my mind, the shorter this moment is, the less likely it's going to result in transformation. Mm-hmm. The longer it stretches on, interestingly enough, the more it will force our creative juices to come together and reimagine how we do things. How are you feeling about the vast differences that we're all hearing about, seeing about, learning about between various districts, between families, among families within within districts themselves? It, it, are you seeing signs that that will push towards greater opportunity, greater innovation for those folks who might not be having those opportunities right now? Or 
is that do, do you feel like that risks being seen as a limit and a limitation to the power of and the opportunity around innovation? Yeah, I, I hope it creates energy and, and, and fuel for, for remedying some of those inequities and, and creating a bigger platform to do things differently. You know, the fact that 9 million kids don't have access to high-speed broadband or, or internet, or, you know, connected devices to be able to do remote learning and the like, I think should be a wake-up call that we need to get a foundational infrastructure in place uh, in these homes environments, you, you know, even if things go back to business as usual, just to address the homework gap and the ability to prepare and so forth at home. And, and uh, I, you know, I, I hope it's a wake up call because the funds exist actually in the current system to remedy some of those problems. It's literally some policy and regulatory hoops uh, that we could drive through just to basically close that gap and then create a platform, I think, from which we could really innovate in some robust ways for people that don't have access to tutors and, and homework help and things like that uh, could be a tremendous platform. So I, I hope it shows us that it's within our grasp, that the problem of access is actually not that interesting a problem we could solve. But if we don't solve it, it's really interesting in the sense that we don't get the ability to tackle all the things uh, that, that we could do with these modalities in terms of personalizing learning and being able to solve uh, for, for, for different student challenges that they present and the like. Uh, and so, so, you know, we'll see how this shakes out. I, I, the long-term trends on this, I think, are quite good in the sense that, you know, mobile device, devices are much more equitably uh, distributed. They're much lower cost. Access is less of an issue and so forth. But we also don't have uh, products and services in the education realm that are by and large at this point developed for those devices in any productive sort of way. And so, you know, to get something that works for laptops and high-speed internet connectivity and the like, I think is incredibly important uh, over the next five to 10 years. And this moment reveals just how important uh, it is. How worried are you about learning loss? Um, and, and what should schools be most concerned about, in your view, when they reopen? So I'm tremendously worried about learning loss. I think there's no question that millions of students are essentially having no experience whatsoever right now. And mm. a lot of districts, I think, in a misguided sense of equity have said, if we can't deliver for everyone, we're going to deliver to no one. Whereas I would take a different view. Let's deliver for as many as we can. And then for those we couldn't reach, let's double and triple down when they come back in and really spend our support and resources on them. The second part of your answer, though, may surprise some folks who just heard me say that, which is to say that I do think before you think about the academics, make sure that the foundation is there in terms of the social emotional uh, side of the student, in terms of the health factors, in terms of all the th sort of ground zero things that are important for someone to be able to learn you need to at least be thinking about those. And it's sort of a Maslow's hierarchy of needs in some simplistic way, right? Which is if you don't take care of first principles, they're not going to come in ready to learn. And at the same time, I think you can assess all of those things uh, as students come back in a, in a holistic way, which is to say, if I were a district, I would spend a lot of time up front the first couple weeks of, of students coming back into physical school whenever that happens trying to figure out what was going on, you know, in their home lives, what was going on from a health perspective, what was, what was, you know, were they experiencing trauma? What was going on socially? What was going on emotionally? What was going on with their relationships? Were they asked to do things? And I would also be doing 
intake on where are they academically? What have they mastered and what have they not mastered? You know, I think the one of the travesties of the move to pass fail has been that we're not going to actually have a very good understanding of what students know and can, and can do out of this. Whereas I would have gone the reverse, which is to a mastery based uh, uh, system where I would say, okay, we're no longer going to look at A, B, C, and D against a class. Instead, I want to know within certain concepts, are you building mastery and fluency in them so that when you come back, it's easier for me to understand, hey, this is where I need to spend my time with you. You know, student X, you know, well-fed, health is in a good place, family was around, it was actually a really joyous time, they didn't learn a thing. They come back to me in a really good uh, mental state, if you will, ready to learn, but I see all these gaps, and I can yeah. know that pretty quickly. Student B, a lot of gaps. Maybe they did actually learn something. I'm going to have a very different approach for that child. So what's your guidance to educators in, one, a resource-constrained world, um, yeah. and then as well, maybe maybe as well to the extent that you feel you're able, guidance to parents? Because what I'm hearing is on the this learning loss. Uh, the 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 school administrators, our teachers, are surely going to be under tremendous pressure to make up that gap. Hey, my kid yep. was out. Got to make up that learning loss. It, at the same time, there's the soft skill part. The saw, let's call it the soft stuff. And you were just talking about it. Do an evaluation for uh, the children. You yeah. know, what, what did they lose? What's your guidance? So if if Teachers, educators, administrators are going to be under dual pressures because of the learning loss. What's your guidance to them on how to work that balance? What I would do if I were the educators is step back. Those first few weeks, I would be going back and deciding what are the core competencies from an academic perspective that students really need to know and be able to do? And what are the things that like, yes, in an ordinary year, we would have loved them to master, but it's okay, right, for their academic careers if they don't get that. And so, you know, in mathematics, probably a bunch of those skills are going to be core things that they need to still learn. Whereas history, social studies, like they're going to be things that, yes, I wish that they had learned, but it's okay if they didn't. But there'll be some things germane to the community or the conversation or whatever in social studies and history that I'm probably going to say, I absolutely want to make sure I know every single student knew and did, you know, got this right. Same thing on the social, emotional health side and so forth. What are the core things that we need to, that we want to be in place or know about yeah. for students? So that I, I would start with a very frank week long conversation around that. The second week would be then, okay, how are we going to assess those different items? And some of their, those, there are very good instruments that exist that you don't have to reinvent the wheel on. And some of them, honestly, you can just do an oral assessment where the teacher talks to the kid for 30 minutes and gets a sense for, gee, they actually have fluency with these things. I've got a sense for their home life. This seems to be a real challenge and therefore we're going to do X, Y, and Z, right? And, and the key is not to come up with a plan right now. It's just to come up with how are we going to assess the gap and what's there and what's not. And then uh, from there, you would start to build what's our new academic model to handle the fact that all these students need personalization and different uh, sorts of interventions for different students. And, and honestly, redesigning at that point the, the uh, classroom model to disrupt, if you will, class uh, the way we've always done it. What would you argue we should be funding and prioritizing 
um, in the CARES Act and, and other federal policy? Are there things that we should be focusing on right now that can maybe not only get us through this period, but then can become maybe building blocks in terms of disruptive innovation going forward? One of the things I think is is honestly, we need to move the posture of the federal government from looking at point in time assessment uh, and assuming just because you're a certain age that you will have mastered a certain set of concepts, which I think is absurd on the face given the different backgrounds people bring to begin with, but is really absurd right now. I would move, would much rather move toward a growth oriented view of of students from where you are, where have you moved toward. Uh, and, and that to me is in some ways the, the, the biggest move that we could do because then schools would stop feeling some of this pressure to just get someone up to a certain arbitrary level and instead start to say, okay, what's the right thing for this child? Let's, let's make sure the foundation is in place. Let's start to think about growth measures. And if growth is important, we have some time because we have a whole school year to do that. Let's take care of first principles first so that we can sow the sow the seeds for 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 growth and and in some ways i think more than you know f- funds will obviously be important and support in that way but i also think starting to really move much more aggressively to a to a, a non grade level growth oriented mm-hmm. posture uh for schools is is something that the federal government ought to move more aggressively toward if you feel like equity is a gap that exists how do we protect going forward against a widening in that equity gap? So this is actually maybe the question, the wonderful question that connects a lot of strands, because here's what's interesting. If schools and government do nothing, right, those with the most resources will continue to find ways to learn regardless. We are, you know, I'm in this position, right? We are capable of providing the resources, both analog and digitally, to my kids (laughs) so that they continue to make incredible progress. I mean, my my kids, the progress that they've made from a reading perspective over the last two months has been magical from my Mm -hmm. perspective. Like, you know, they're doing incredible in my mind. Um, But a lot of families are not in that position, right? And so that is why schools and government to provide financing to make sure that schools can serve those without access to resources or without the time or inclination or know-how to get those resources is so very, very important. You know, there's an interesting stat on the digital divide, which is that in certain ways it's reversed. And I alluded to this earlier, which is that uh, youth, uh, teenagers specifically from low-income backgrounds actually disproportionately have access to mobile devices connected to the internet than, than upper income students. Uh, but what's also true is that they use it in very counterproductive ways. They're up till late hours, you know, two in the morning, certainly not doing educational stuff on those devices, uh, and quite destructive. And so you say there's, there's two sort of, uh, reactions to that. One is ban devices, get them out of their hands. And to that, I'd say, wonderful, but good luck. Yeah. Good luck. That's what I'm thinking (laughs) too. And, uh, and, and, and two would be, well, schools actually, they're going to have to, here's another place. They're going to have to integrate in and teach them how to responsibly use them in a healthy social way. And so I, I kind of think to your equity question, 
if we're serious about it, schools have to tackle these questions and society and governments will have to tackle these questions because families like mine, like we talk about balance all the time, right? We talk about how to use a tool respectfully and in the way it was designed. We make it social. We are able to pull in, even today, like I was working on seasons with one of my kids, pulled in a simulation from the Khan Academy and the two of us were going there debating on, you know, the angle of the earth and the tilt and the direct sunlight and not and so forth. That's a conversation we can have because I'm aware of those things. That's where schools need to help the mm. large percentage of students who do not come from families that can have that conversation. Yeah, I, I know the very last thing you need is another job, but I'm certain that any parents listening to this are, are going to want to know. So very quickly, and if there's any guidance you can give. One, what are the ages of your kids? And two, are there any tips, guidance that, that <laughs> you would give, you know, I, not, not from a, I know it all perspective, but from Definitely a, I've been doing yeah. some things over the last months and they seem to be working. Okay. Yeah, I definitely don't know it all. And Understood. Some, some of your some of your listeners will laugh because so I have twins, uh, uh, my own randomized control trial in my <laughs> house. But uh, how, how old? Uh, they are five and a half years old, so they're okay. young. Okay. Um, uh, on, on the on the very early end, uh, you know, the biggest thing we've done is put a schedule in place, and and and, and by schedule I mean routines, mm -hmm. uh, and and stuck to them so that they have some measure of control, sitting in some measure of uh, recurrence and certainty about what will be there and then a clear sense of what they get to decide right within that within that uh, schedule so you know i thought one of my kids was going to work on thank you letters for uh, someone uh, during today um, and instead she chose to read for an hour totally great right like th that's a choice that she made but i think a sense of routine uh is extremely helpful to the family and, and, and functions and, mm. and a clear sense of what they can expect. So because uncertainty can can drive anxiety and 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 create uh you know it creates challenges. And the other thing I would say is we're also very clear, you know, that they're gonna get outdoors for certain amounts of time, that they're gonna, you know, that they're part of the family union and they have to help us walk the dog and thing. And you know, certain things like that. It's not all academics. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, we've actually de-emphasized in many ways, and then they've just driven it because they're curious. Um, and so I, to me, it's really balance, routine, and consistency are the biggest things you can, you can do for kids and, uh, and, and give them the security to explore and be on their own so you as the parent don't have to be answering every single thing for them or doing everything for them. You know, we've created a snack cabinet for them that they can have control of that over. Hmm. Do sometimes they splurge too much? Sure. But that's, you know, that's the trade-off we're willing to make because it gives them some measure of control over something, which I think is, is, is wonderful. So those are, I think are the top line advice pieces of advice I'd give. Yeah. Hate to say it, but, uh, the, Horn homeschooling. <laughs> there, there's another business there for you. I, I think there. Well, it's kind of you to say. I, <laughs> I, I hope my wife agrees. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure everyone there. I'm sure at least the two of you are looking to get out of the business. It, it, you know, as, <laughs> as soon as you and hand it back over to the professionals. Exactly, um, M Michael. To close out our conversation, um, you give off the sentiment, the feeling of an incredibly positive person. So I, I would have to assume that you are a glass half full 
um, type of person. So yep. As you're looking at the situation that we're in, everyone wants to know what's next. What are the silver linings? I think the silver linings are frankly the questions that you've asked over the last 30 minutes, which is to say the lid has been lifted on what school actually looks like for a lot of families. And they're asking questions about does this make sense? You know, why is why is my kid still doing worksheets right ad nauseum? Why don't why aren't they motivated to do X, Y, and Z? Why you know all these questions about why does something function the way it does? And I think the fact that we now have the room and necessity to ask these questions will hopefully lead to innovation because that you know that's where innovation starts is asking a good question, <laughs> and uh, so I'm hopeful. While I don't think every place will will innovate and rethink schooling tomorrow, I do think a handful and more than a handful of places will make some measurable progress because they'll be asking some 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 really important questions and come up with some new uh, new ways of doing things that benefit more more learners. Michael, thank you. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and for, for cultivating this conversation. That was my conversation with Michael Horn. My thanks to Michael for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.